0: Good morning. This is Forum Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Today I'm joined by Dr. Beth Noble, a Fordham professor who co-wrote a guidebook for young journalists with CBS News legend Mike Wallace. Heat and Light, advice for the next generation of journalists is from Crown, a division of Random House. Good morning, Beth. Good morning, Robin. Now, we'll get into discussing your book in a moment, but first, let's talk about you. Uh, A little background. You teach journalism here at Fordham, but you've had a 20-plus year-long career as a reporter and uh, in television, radio, newspapers. So tell us about how you got started. Well,
1: you know, being a journalist is pretty much the only thing I've ever wanted to do. And I started working in journalism when I was in high school at Stuyvesant High School here in New York. And, um... I went to Barnard, which is part of Columbia. Mm -hmm. So uh, I graduated from Barnard. What I really wanted to cover was politics, so I went and did a master's degree at Harvard in public policy, a a little known but wonderful discipline. So how did you end up reporting out of Russia? And so I started going to Russia in 1990 to work on my dissertation, and I really fell in love with the place. And uh, I moved there uh, after I graduated. I also met a particular Russian who I fell in love with, and we've been married now for 12 years. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons I decided to write this book is that I really wanted to write a book that I could have read Mm -hmm. when I was in college that would have told me a
0: lot of things that I learned uh, in my career. Now, when you're training your students or teaching your students, are you training them to step right out and get a job, or are you training them to be able to maybe now go get your master's or your Ph.D.? What, is, Which one is more important, do you think?
1: Well, you know, we're trying to do both. Um, but the thing about students is they come in with really, really varied um, ideas for what they want to do. Some of them want to be sports journalists and want to be play-by-play announcers. And uh, some of them want to be, you know, the next Mike Wallace and do investigative reporting. And journalism is so wide that you have to help each student decide what
0: they need. So Beth, where stuff. do you start? Where, what's the first step? They, these students come into this class um, and they think, you know, I'm going to be the next Mike Wallace. I'm going to be the next, you know, uh, TV personality. What, where do you start them off? Well, you know, we start actually at the same place where we started the book. You start with a big discussion about
1: why the media is important and what do journalists have to do well. And sort of what personality do you need to be a journalist Cause okay can not, you answer well n- not everyone is a is a good journalist you' got to be a people person. you have to like people. you have to be sort of open minded um, and we We start the book with a discussion of things like fairness and balance and objectivity and why what these things are and why they 're crucial to the American uh, journalistic tradition and how some of these things are really being stood on their head right now. Like we say that accuracy is paramount. If you're not accurate, then you have no business being a journalist. Because you can't be trusted. That's right. And you harm yourself and you harm your, your news organization if you're not accurate. And there's, there's a moral imperative to be accurate, but there's also a legal Uh, imperative to be accurate and one of the chapters of the book is a is a whole discussion of what's legal and what's moral and how do you know the difference and how do you live up to both standards so Beth what got you to where you are now so I moved to CBS started as a producer then I became a producer and bureau chief, and then by the end I was the producer,
0: bureau chief, and correspondent. So That's, we had those hyphenated titles, uh, like you talk about in your in your book, uh, "Heat and Light." Um, you were talking about the hyphenated titles and how it's good to learn everything you can. It's not just a reporter; it's reporter slash producer slash anchor slash. Well, and now it's it's moving even beyond that into
1: correspondent slash producer slash cameraman slash writer slash editor. <laughs> And, uh, you know, people of my generation don't understand necessarily that you need not only the big picture thinking skills and interview skills to be a good journalist, but increasingly you need a lot of technical skills. There's some Fordham students who have been hired recently to be what's called one-man bands. You know, some of them are women, but they're one-person bands where they, they're TV reporters and they have their own gear. They have a camera, a tripod, light kit. They usually carry roughly 70 pounds of gear with them and they've got to shoot the story they've got to shoot themselves doing a stand-up hmm they've got to write the story they've got to edit the story all by themselves mm-hmm. at CBS we had five people to do those jobs and they're now being done by one is it okay journalism yeah it's okay it's better than nothing but is it a recipe for great journalism and why is this happening money it's a lot cheaper to hire one person than five people yeah. and newsrooms and, are shrinking They're shrinking, Uh, bureaus are shrinking, the entire business is really contracting. And a news organization has got to understand that there's a price to pay, that yeah, you're only paying one person to do that job, but the quality of the journalism is really going to fall. And that's okay, but it's not good for
0: viewers, it's not good for the journalists themselves, and in the long run, it's not actually very good for society. Because you, you do mention that in Heat and Light, that the multitasking, um, our generation or the younger generation is brought up doing you know, 10 things at once. They're doing their homework while they're listening to their iPod with the TV on in the back. But you also mention in, in your book that um, doing all of this, you're, you're, you're not focused, and you're not necessarily um, going to master one. You know what's that old that old saying? Um, jack of all trades, master of none. So do you, so. You were saying it's not a good thing necessarily, but it's a necessary thing to to multitask. Well, it's
1: necessary if you're a young journalist coming up in the business to be able to multitask and to have the combination of good reporting skills, good people skills, and technical skills. It's it's absolutely crucial. Um, just this week, the New York Times was uh, had some ads up for jobs. They weren't for you know traditional journalists to go out they were actually looking for people who could interview people on video and edit the video themselves they were looking for video journalists Mm -hmm. at the New York Times right and that's a you know a classic example of the way this business is changing these old ideas we have if somebody came up to me and said oh I, I want to be a newspaper reporter I don't need to learn how to shoot video I don't need how to learn how to picture edit I would say, "Oh, yes, you do, and that's what you tell your students absolutely i I urge them, and we're actually have been involved in a um discussion inside our faculty about how to change our curriculum to make sure that anyone who studies journalism here uh walks out with technical skills as well as those critical thinking and skills that they need and I'm sure that conversations going on at pretty much every journalism school in the country
0: this is Fordham conversations and Robin Shannon discussing journalism for the next generation of journalists with dr. Beth Noble who co-wrote the book heat and light with news legend Mike Wallace so Beth Noble how did you meet Mike well I was the
1: Moscow bureau chief for CBS starting in 1999 until 2006 and so twice during that time Mike came to Russia to do stories so the first time he came was in 2000. It was after Boris Yeltsin had resigned from the presidency, and he had a book coming out called Midnight Diaries. And so one television company was chosen to interview him for the book, and it was Mike. So Mike came over to Moscow and spent a little more than a week uh, preparing for the interview, doing the interview, and then editing the story. And that was a big get for him. It was a big get for him. You know, Yeltsin did not give a lot of interviews by that Point he was not in terrific health, and uh, he was he was very ornery. The uh, Mike tried to uh, joke with him, and it, it totally didn't work. He uh, he came in and he he said, uh, you know, at one point he called President Yeltsin a very nice young man, mm-hmm. and uh, thought it might warm him, him up, make him laugh or something. Yeah, it didn't work, not at all. And uh, there was a bad translation problem during the interview as well. Though the way it worked is that there were two. Um, translators. There was a tr- CBS translator who was translating Yeltsin's answers into English. Mm-hmm. And there was a Russian government translator translating Mike's questions into into Russian. And the government translator made a mistake. oh. Mike asked Yeltsin if he were thick-skinned, meaning able to take criticism. Right. And um, the translator, although he was very good, he didn't quite understand the idiomatic English. And he somehow translated it And asked the president if he was a hippopotamus uh, or rhinoceros or something like that and something with a physical thick skin right Mm -hmm. and and Yeltsin said now wait a minute either there's just been a terrible translation error or you've asked me a totally inappropriate question and he got very upset and everybody said no 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 obviously there's a problem with the translation and calmed him down but uh, it, it was a very tough interview and afterwards in fact mike was supposed to be driven around yeltsin's property in a golf cart mm-hmm. with the president so they usually after an interview they need pictures of the two people together right. and at uh one basically one second after the hour had elapsed, during which Yeltsin had promised to sit down with Mike, he just stood up and said, that's it, we're done. Oh, wow. And left us to have cake with his wife and daughter. <laughs> were they nicer? They, they were nicer. And, and it, you know, it turned out to be a pretty good interview. So that was the first time. And I didn't, you know, it was the first time I'd ever met Mike. And uh, I really didn't know what to expect. And, and what I was surprised was that he has a fantastic sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a... Uh, uh, he, he can joke he can joke about himself he can joke about
0: the world um and you um interwove in heat and light your book that you co-wrote with uh Mike Wallace you interwove some very interesting stories and one of them was how you came up with the title so how did you come up with the title Beth well one of the things that we
1: that Mike talked about that very first day that I got the idea for the book when he was speaking at Fordham is he, he uses the analogy of heat and light to describe what journalism is all about. This is, this is his alone, and I've really never heard anyone speak about journalism the way that he does. So he says that good journalism is made up of heat and light. The heat is the drama, the excitement. The light is the information. If you have one without the other, it's not ideal. What you really want is both. The heat is meaning that something is important, that people should care about it. The light is that it's bringing new information that you're really not getting other places.
0: Do you have an example of one of his uh, reports or stories that, uh, that Mike displays both heat and light? Oh, boy. You know, I'd have to say that most of Mike's reports have both of them. For example,
1: I'll, I'll just give you one. He um, did a, a very long piece about uh, Jack Kevorkian. The, the doctor who uh, was assisting in people's suicides, usually when they were very ill and ended up going to prison. And Mike actually interviewed him twice. He interviewed him when he was uh, just coming to prominence and uh, interviewed him after he served some time in prison. And, and that's, that's both. It's heat because it's such an important issue, euthanasia. And it's light because Kavorkian had not really sat down with someone for so long and had a chance to explain why he was doing what he was doing. Or when he came out of prison, he was able to explain that even though he had served time, he still thought he was morally correct in what he was doing. So that's the sort of story where you, you, have, you have both. Uh, another example that's not Mike's is uh, this story, uh, recent story of, about General McChrystal. That's actually heat and light. It's mm-hmm. heat. It's this important person. This is the man who's leading um, our campaign in Afghanistan. And it's light because it's bringing information that no one else has has ever brought to light. And that's exactly what good journalism is all about.
0: So, uh, Beth, your book Heat and Light discusses how Fox News changed the landscape of so-called objective news reporting. How and why was this done? And was it a good idea? Well, uh, Fox is arguably the most important thing that's
1: happened to journalism and certainly to broadcast journalism in many 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 years. One of the people that I teach about in my course um TV news innovators is Roger Ailes, who is the man who created Fox News Channel and he uh is is a brilliant brilliant man. And he came up with a completely new concept for for television news, which is that we're going to do news that supports a conservative, mostly Republican point of view. Uh, but we're going to call ourselves fair and balanced. And we're going to let opinion get on the news. Now, you, you can argue whether their, their hard news coverage is biased. They would argue it's not. Lots of people argue that it is. But certainly, their prime time lineup is all opinion shows. And one of the people that I interviewed for the book was Chris Wallace, who's Mike's son and is, uh, has a, a long and, and wonderful career in journalism, spent many years at NBC, at ABC, and now uh, works at Fox at, at Fox News Sunday. And so I was able to put a lot of these questions to him about what Fox does and why it does it. And he basically says, in a newspaper, there's an op-ed page. So you have straight news coverage on the news co- pages, and then you have opinion on the op-ed page. And people know the difference, and that's good. They can choose. Go to the objective news, go to the op-ed, read both. And that Fox is basically the same thing, that if people want opinion, they know it's there, they know that they can get it, they can tell this is Fox's straight news, this is Fox's opinion, and, and watch what you want. That assumes that news consumers are pretty sophisticated Uh, about what they're watching. And some of them are and some of them aren't. The real reason that Fox is so important is that it's been so successful. uh, It's absolutely destroying its competition. CNN is in turmoil because of Fox. And MSNBC has basically tried to take Fox's game and play it a different way. Okay, you want to be the conservative channel? Let's be the liberal channel and we'll get viewers and that's worked okay but for us who the people Mike and I we come out of a, a different school and we feel vaguely uncomfortable with the fact not that there's opinion channels but that they don't sort of come out and openly say okay and here's an opinion show or Fox News Channel America's conservative news network if they said that, it would actually make us feel a little bit more comfortable. Because you do
0: have students who might not know the difference. They're young. Uh, they're they're just getting into journalism. They might not know the difference. And we have a lot of Fordham students, actually,
1: who work at Fox News Channel. And um, they come to me and, and they tell me, well, you know, what do I do? Do I be objective? Do I slant the news? Uh, what's expected by Fox? What's ex- expected from me? And you sort of have to say, look, you know, News is news, and news should be objective so that people will find it credible. Now, if you're working for Bill O'Reilly, you're obviously not going to fight with him about what he does. He does an opinion show. He does it incredibly well. Uh, Mike, believe it or not, adores Bill O'Reilly and thinks he's a terrific guy and interviewed him and really enjoyed meeting him and thinks he's he's really brilliant at what he does, and, and I'd have to agree. But it's not you know for every what person who be, well
0: you know somebody in the beginning
1: at the beginning it's really crucial that even if a student is going to go to fox or to msnbc or to opinion networks that haven't even sprung up yet but will sprung up over the next 10 years it's really essential that they understand the fundamentals of good journalism if you then leave that behind to do opinion journalism then then so be it but you have to know the basics and the basics are objective reporting accurate reporting Uh, fairness to all sides so that people know they can trust what you're saying and that it's it's really
0: believable and credible. I'm Robin Shannon on 90.7 WFUV speaking with Dr. Beth Noble about her book Heat and Light, Advice for the Next Generation of Journalists, which she co-wrote with news legend Mike Wallace. Stay with us. More Fordham Conversations is ahead.
1: This summer marks the 35th anniversary of the now-legendary film Jaws, a movie that still counts as one of the top ten thrillers in history. Hi, I'm George Baldarchi. Coming up on this morning's Cityscape, we're paying homage to sharks in our waters, in popular culture, and even on the field. That's Cityscape, this morning at 7.30, right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org.
0: Beth Noble, I'd like to talk about two other types of journalism, neutral journalism and advocacy journalism. So talk to me about these forms of journalism and the two men associated with them, uh, i.e. Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow. Walter Cronkite, the, uh, the anchorman
1: for CBS from the 60s uh, until the 80s, was the personification of neutral journalism. You almost never knew where Walter stood on any issue, and he didn't want the audience to know or care where he stood he was all about objective reporting. I'm gonna give you the facts, you can figure it out for yourself. I trust you to be able to take the facts and decide what's important. And that formula worked incredibly well for him and for CBS. People knew that they would turn on CBS then and just get the facts. And uh, the only time, one of the only times that Cronkite ever broke away from that was in 1968 when he went to Vietnam after the Tet Offensive and he saw for himself how bad things were. And he had been a supporter of, of the Vietnam War, but he came back and he said, this war is is unwinnable and the best thing for us would be to do is, is to get out. But even then, he didn't make those comments on the evening news. He made them in a prime time broadcast. And the reason he did is that the the loss of innocent lives so troubled him morally that he stepped away from his typical objectivity. But that was an incredibly rare occurrence. 99.99% of the time, Cronkite stuck to pure objective journalism, total neutrality. And that really worked. And, and that's what students should strive for. Well, that's... In the beginning, we, at least. That's what we think. That's we, what we think that people should strive for. But, you know, it's sometimes really hard to figure out what objectivity is, especially sometimes you report a story and you get a he said and a she said, and you weren't there. So you don't actually know what the objective truth is. That's where, where it gets really complicated. There's a whole nother school of journalism that also came out of CBS. Before Cronkite was Edward R. Murrow, who arguably was the most important journalist, perhaps, ever. And he was not trained as a journalist. He was trained in drama, but he ended up working for CBS as kind of a booker at the start of World War II. And there was no one around, and he went on the air. And because he had studied drama, he had a wonderful voice. He had a wonderful way with words. And uh, he... M- reported the war firsthand he literally stood on the rooftops of london with a long microphone cord and it explained what it was like when the bombs were falling and he really made americans care about world war ii the war ended he was the, the most famous journalist in america and he came back and he started to work in this new thing called television and uh, his show in started in 1951 see it now was sort of uh a chance for a group of extraordinarily talented journalists to figure out what television was and what it could do well and they they went all over the world reporting stories and murrow had an incredible strong moral compass to him and he didn't think that there was any uh reason to have objective journalism he thought that a journalist's moral imperative was to to say what he thought and uh, one of the things that Murrow's most famous for and what ultimately actually ended his career was that he went up against Senator Joe McCarthy, who was a senator from Wisconsin in the early 50s and was accusing hundreds, if not thousands of people of being communist agents and started started a whole red scare that really paralyzed American society. And Murrow basically said, we have to speak out about what he's doing. And so he did it simply by showing McCarthy letting McCarthy, filming him, and showing what he had to say. And at the, the end of the, of the show, basically, Morrow said, this is not a time for us to stand by and let this man make mincemeat out of people's lives. We need to stand up to him. And it was the highlight of his career, and it was also the moment that destroyed his career, because the owner of CBS, William S. Paley, didn't like the fact that Murrow was out there doing advocacy journalism. He really believed in that objective model. He much preferred the style of a Cronkite to the style of a Murrow. And he said, you know, Ed, I'm with you today. I'll be with you tomorrow. But he really wasn't with him tomorrow. And Murrow ended up leaving CBS and uh, basically smoking himself to an early death. Mm-hmm. And and you can see that this tension is is really still ar- around. I mean, part of it is is Fox is is really in that advocacy journalism tradition. And part of the reason that, that things are changing in terms of advocacy journalism coming back is not just Fox and these other opinion channels. It's also the internet, because it's now so much easier for anyone to be a journalist, really, or a blogger, or spe- spread their opinion. And so there's a lot more advocacy journalism going on on the web, because people have access to information. It's easy to spread information. People have issues that they care about, and uh, I think advocacy journalism
0: can be wonderful. Would you say that maybe seasoned journalists should stick with advocacy journalism and an objective journalism should be for, well, everyone, but especially for students? Well, I think everybody should know
1: objective journalism, and that's where everyone should start. It may not be where you finish, but you need to start. You know, uh, a painter doesn't start by doing a giant canvas. A, a painter starts by learning basic brush strokes, and that's what what we advocate in the in the book. We're basically teaching people here the basic brush strokes of good journalism. But where people will end up depends on on them and on their career path and and which organization that they're working for and what's expected of them by their organizations, because. Uh, there are so many different kinds of journalism going on now. And so if you work at Rolling Stone, they're not going to expect the kind of reporting that you would get if you were working at The Washington Post or if you're working at a, at a, on a Talking Points memo or, or some other Internet-only site. They have sort of some different
0: expectations as well. And you touched on it a little earlier, but how is technology, uh, computers, Facebook, Twitter, how is that changing journalism? Well, it's having a, a huge effect and, and some of it's good, and some of it's not so good. The, the
1: good part is that there's so much more information available now than there ever was. The bad side is that the technology is taking away the time to think. That because of the Internet, it, it, for example, it used to be that a newspaper reporter wrote one story a day at the end of the day when everything had happened and tried to sum it up now that same newspaper reporter has to file constantly during the whole day something changes they update their story they update they update They update the website yeah exactly Mm -hmm. so the print paper may come out once a day but the website is being updated constantly and so what that does is it takes away some of their time to report and to think and so you may be able to get information faster but the quality of the information may be worse so, Beth, where do you see journalism going? The whole last chapter of, of Heat and Light is about where uh, Mike Wallace and I see journalism going and what we think people need to do to succeed in the the new world of journalism. It's, it's evolving, and it's evolving really quickly. There's going to be no, really, tradition anymore of I am a newspaper, I am broadcast. Everything is just morphing into one. And so that means that journalists need many, many different skills to be able to do all of those things that will be required of them. There'll be more specialized kind of news outlets. The local press is, uh, is in big trouble, and local papers will probably become increasingly local. So you're going to have a couple of news organizations that will be truly national or global, and most of them will become increasingly local and sort of put their money into something that they can do well. New staffs are probably gonna get smaller, but it's the, in the short term, it doesn't look that good. In the long term, I'm not so sure. And it really depends on young people wanting news and consuming news, because if people want news, news will
0: be produced and people are going to have to pay for it because that's the challenge now that some websites news websites are trying or did try to have people pay for their content but since there were so many other sources that had the same content out there or similar content people said I'm not going to go ahead and pay for it I'll just go to the free site even though it might not be as uh efficient or or thorough that's exactly it
1: but if you had to if everybody had to pay if you couldn't get any news unless you paid Hopefully, there'd be enough people to pay to still make the system work. Um, Do you think that'd work with younger younger generation of, of, of journalists? Well, I'm not really sure. I hope so. I I look at my own students, and I, I poll them at the beginning of the semester. I, I often make them keep a media diary about what they read and what they listen to, and they they don't consume a lot of news. And I teach journalism students, and they still don't consume a lot of news. And one of the things I try to teach them is that it's really important. It's important for them for their future careers, because the first thing that happens when you go to a news organization for a job interview is they give you a news quiz. And if you don't pass, you don't get a job. So it's sort of some self-interest. But there's a bigger picture here, which is that our society depends on a free press. The free press is the essential element to our society. Functioning as a democratic society. I just spent almost 15 years living in Russia where a lot of the press is under government control. Television in particular is really government controlled there. And it leads to a lot of misinformation. It's Some of it is propaganda, quite frankly. And that's a terrible thing for their society. We in America are lucky to have a very, very free press. But that free press will only exist if people support it you sort of need to educate every 18-year-old in the country. You know, you ought to sort of sit them down and say, okay, now you're going to get the right to vote, and let's explain to you about what it is that our society is built on. And the free press is, is really, really essential. Without it, you know, we, people won't know what the government is doing. They won't know what's going on. They won't know about fantastic advances in medicine. And so it's really up to all of us to keep the press healthy and alive. Thank you very much, Beth Noble. Thank you, Robin.
0: My thanks to Dr. Beth Noble, who co-wrote Heat and Light, Advice for the Next Generation of Journalists with Mike Wallace. The book is available from Crown, a division of Random House. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Next week, Mary Wilson will be your host. Stay with us, George Bodarki and Cityscaper next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Channing.